We, if you're new to Revolution Church, we like to study books of the Bible at a time, and currently we are in the Gospel of Luke, and it's been fascinating. Uh, on that note, my family and I went and saw The Chosen in the theaters last night. Wow, mind blown. <laughs> won't, won't give you any spoiler alerts, okay? But uh, if you plan on seeing it, let me know. I have, I have a word of advice for you about it, but it, it was really good. Anyway, uh, Greg DeMent is our scripture reader this morning. Good morning, Greg. How are you? All right. And if you, uh, again, remind you that there will be a question and answer at the end of the message, so you can text in your questions, or you can raise your hand if you'd rather. All right, Greg, lead us in God's Word this morning. Luke 6, 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I learned an interesting word this past week, contextomy. Contextomy. I don't know if I've ever heard that before. It means to take someone's phrase deliberately and take it out of context. That never happens, right, in politics or in the world. Anybody ever had that happen to you? Yeah, I definitely have had that happen, and it, it's not any fun for sure. The uh, People are guilty of doing that with the Bible, big time. People will take verses out of context to try to twist them to say what they want them to say. And today we are going to learn about one of the most abused, misused, and taken out of context verses on all the Bible. In fact, um, Curtis sent me a text of a video reminding me that the same passage has probably another verse that's just as abused. So we're going to get two very abused verses this morning. But the one, judge not lest you be judged. Goodness gracious. Everybody says that all the time, and they don't quote the rest of the passage that Jesus is teaching us here. It is quoted, I believe, to justify all types of foolish and immoral behavior in order to escape any and all accountability. You know, a lot of famous people will say, only God can judge me, or they, you know, will say, don't judge me. You know, who are you to judge me? As if we're not supposed to use our brains at all about any behavior. Oh, you threw your wife off a cliff? Well, who am I to judge? Okay? You know, you spank your kids with a whip? Well, hey, don't judge, you know? You know, you want to marry your cat? Hey, I'm not going to judge anybody, as if we have no brains whatsoever. And they will do this they will twist God's word to distort it to justify bad behavior. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to divide it into four categories here. First of all, there's forgiveness before judgment. 
There's training before leadership. There is introspection before inspection. And then finally, we'll conclude with transformation before production. So these are the four points. We'll jump right in. If you're ready to receive God's word, say amen. amen. It's good to see God's house getting fuller. I just went outside to check. We have no parking spaces left. <laughs> Andre's mom, I think, got the last spot, and she had to fish bed. So we, we're going to try to fix that parking problem. Um, so forgiveness before judgment. To judge, he uses two words here, judge and condemn. To judge is to discern right and wrong and declare a verdict. To condemn is to pass on a sentence. Therefore, to condemn is to say, therefore your punishment should be, etc. People use good judgment all the time. I hope those of you who are single, as you're considering dating someone, marrying someone, you're going to use good judgment. If some guy who has no character, no job, and just got out of prison says, hey, you want to go on a date? You're going to say, no, <laughs> maybe. And he's going to say, well, don't judge me. You know, I mean, we don't do that. Every day, those of you who are employers, you interview people, and you hire some and don't hire others. You are judging. Again, it's, it's foolish and just ridiculous beyond measure, but famous people and, and not-so-famous people, but even intelligent people will throw this phrase out as if we're never supposed to make any decision. And by telling you, that you're wrong for judging them, what are they doing? They're judging you. It, doesn't, it really doesn't make any sense. But it goes on to say, if you, if you do, do this in this context, you will not be judged. And of course, it goes on to say, the question is, by whom? Some theologians, as I'm studying this in commentaries, say you will, it's what's called the divine passive. It, it implies that you will not be judged by God. Well, I think that's included. I think if you're really harsh and critical on other people, that God will be harsh and critical on you. And if you choose not to be harsh and critical on other people, that God won't be as harsh and critical on you. That could be true. But I don't think it's just God. I think it also includes people. Have you ever noticed that when someone is very demanding of everybody at work, and then when they mess up, it's like, aha, Mrs. Perfect, look who messed up. You know, and everybody wants to pounce on that. But the person who's gracious, when they mess up, it's like, hey, it's okay, we all make mistakes right? You tend to be gracious towards those who are gracious and more like, uh-huh, see, look who thinks they're perfect when, when, and be more judgmental on them. So I think it includes God and people. And then it says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. This is to take that judgment and now pass a sentence on it. Because I think you're X, I'm not going to talk to you or associate with you, or I'm going to do this or that. And of course, in the context, as we'll see, read here, we're talking about hypocritical judgment, we're talking about not holding the same standard to yourself. So we shouldn't be judgmental or critical or condemning people as a, a general rule. And then it says, forgive and you will be forgiven. To forgive means to give someone forbearance or a pass on what they have done. And this implies that something has been done, but the more forgiving you are towards others, the more forgiving they will be towards you. And we need to make something really clear. What type of forgiveness is this talking about? When I was nine years old, I heard the gospel for the first time. I figured out that I was a sinner, even at only nine years old. And I, I knew that I deserved punishment from God. But Jesus took that punishment for me on the cross. And he offered me the free gift of salvation. And I was challenged to invite him into my life and receive that salvation. And I did. 
at that point in time, all my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. I'm not talking to you, Siri. I don't know why. <laughs> all my sins, past, present, future, were forgiven. Okay? Now, I'm in relationship with the Lord. I am related to Him. He is my Father. I am His child. That is a straight line that goes out into eternity that does not change. But then I have what's called fellowship. How well God and I are getting along. You can use the parallel to marriage. The day you got married, the day you said, I do, you're married. It doesn't change. Some mornings you don't feel as married as others. Okay? Some days you're not getting along as well as others. But you are still married. Okay? So now, when you wrong someone in that relationship, you need to ask for forgiveness. Not to stay in the relationship, but because you're in a relationship. So when I ask for forgiveness from God for my sins, I'm not asking to be saved all over again. I'm not asking to be born again again. I'm asking to make things right in, in, the, in the relationship, in the fellowship, that things will be the way they should be. Um, let's see. So, for example, Jesus taught us to pray. He says, pray then, our Father in heaven. Who can pray that prayer? Only a child of God. So this is a prayer for believers. This is a prayer for Christians. People have been born again. And it goes on to say, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This is not asking for forgiveness of sins once and for all that was accomplished on the cross. This is asking to be right with God in fellowship. This is believers already praying this prayer. 1 John 1.9 echoes the same thing. If we, talking about who? Believers. If we, as believers, will confess our sins, He is faithful and just. That's, that's the key word of this verse here. This is talking about believers who are already saved, asking for forgiveness so they can be in right standing with God. And the reason they can do that is because Christ died for those sins. Justice has been met on the cross. And we cannot, we, the Bible clearly teaches you don't have double indemnity. You are not convicted of the same crime twice. So therefore, God has to forgive you because Christ already paid for it. You can't do double jeopardy. So he has to forgive. That's why it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to forgive. It says he's faithful and just. As a good judge, he can't punish you twice. So he has to forgive that sin when you confess it. Interesting also here, the Greek word confess is homo legeo, which means homo meaning the same, legeo meaning language or, or thinking or thought process or language that's put into words. Okay, It means to speak the same language as God. In other words, if you tell a lie, you don't go to God and say, God, please forgive me of my little white lie. I don't think anywhere in God's vocabulary does he have little white lie. You're not speaking the same language. <laughs> You're not going to be forgiven of that sin because you haven't really repented of that sin. If you say, well, God, you know, forgive me for this, but you know, everybody does it. God's like, I don't think we're speaking the same language here. You really want to truly confess, you need to see your sin the way I see your sin. And that's how, you forget, that's how you get right with God. Again, you're not asking to be saved all over again. You're just doing what's right. And part of being right with God is being right with others. If God has forgiven me of how much? Everything. But then I'm, well, I'll never forgive them for that. That hurt me so deeply. I will never forgive. God's like, well, then you and I aren't in good standing. Doesn't mean you're not saved. Doesn't mean you're not my child. But you need to get right with them so you can be right with me. That's forgive us our debts as in proportion to we forgive those who have sinned against us. And then he goes on to say, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, run it over, will 
be put into your lap. This is the other verse that's abused. This is often abused by prosperity gospel preachers. Man, you give money to this ministry, you plant your seeds here, God's going to send a check in the mail, you're going to get a promotion, you're going to get a mansion, you're going to Rolex, and all that stuff. That you, The more you give financially, and it's all tied into money, 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 well, what was the context of the verse? Giving what? Not money, giving forgiveness. Now, is it true that if you're generous, God will be generous to you? Yes, that's a, that's a universal principle. But in the context of this passage, it's not talking about money, at least not money only. It's talking about forgiveness. See, it says forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. See, then notice it's a semicolon there after forgiven. It's not a period. And I realize there's not semicolons in Greek, but the translators are accurate in saying this is one continuous thought. In other words, as you forgive, that forgiveness will come, as you give forgiveness, that forgiveness will come back to you. It'll come back to you in overwhelming grace and overwhelming mercy from God and from others. And it has a picture of someone going to the market with a, a, a burlap bag and they want to get some grain. And so someone says, hey, let me fill up that bag of grain with, for you. And they fill it up and they go, okay, thank you. You know, no, I'm not done. I'm going to pack it down and I'm going to shake it. You ever shake something that holds more, right? Last night I was getting popcorn to move you. I'm shaking it so it fills up more because Tammy loves her popcorn. And so I'm shaking it. I'm, that, that popcorn was running over, okay? We shake it to fit in more. And it was spilling into our laps. There was so much popcorn. That's how God wants to give to you. But it's not talking about money in this context. It's talking about forgiveness. When you are gracious to others, when you overflow in forgiveness to others, as God has done to you, then God does that even more. So if you look at the passage here, it talks about judging, not judging so you won't be judged. And at the bottom, talking about using hypocritical judgment in the blue about the speck in your own eye because and you have a beam. And then it moves on to say forgiving, forgiving and also being that measurement used against others. And so that's what the context is. And it says, for which the, the standard of measurement that you used, if you hold everybody else to this standard, guess what? Everybody's going to say, well, then you better be living up to it too. When you don't, that's called hypocrisy. When you have a very low bar for everybody else, and like, hey, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And you just let it go like water off a duck's back, which I really don't know what that means. But we have a low bar for others. God has a low bar for you. And other people will be gracious and understanding so that when you make mistakes, people understand. There was a pastor of a church in California and, and just a humble, good man. And he was so loving and kind to everybody and gracious. And his church loved him and rallied around him. And the church started growing and growing. And it got to the point where they were looking for a new building and they raised a lot of money to buy and put down on a, new, uh, on a new property. And one Sunday night, and I don't know the details of how this works, but he stood before the church and says, Church, I, I've really got bad news. We put a large amount of money on down on a, some property. We not only did not get the sale, we've lost the money that went, went to it. I don't know how that happens, but anyway. And uh, he thought that they were going to call the U-Haul committee and have that guy gone. And one of the leaders of the church said, stood up and he said, you know, I, I'm sorry this has happened. He says, anybody have any questions? And one of the members stood up and said, yeah, pastor, where are we going to look for land next week? They just like, they just forgave him because he had been so gracious and loving and kind to them. They were going to be that way in return. What measurement do you use? What is your standard that you're using? Do you expect everybody to live by this? And what's funny is what's important to us isn't always as important to other people. You, you have what's, what I call the wheel of judgment, kind of like wheel of fortune. You just roll the wheel, and it's like, well, 
man, I can't believe those people smoke. They call themselves Christians and they smoke. And then the smoker goes, well, I know I have this bad habit, but at least I have my kids behaving. Your kids are horrible. And then, well, my kids may be horrible, but we give money to missions, you know. And, well, we may not give money to missions, but we serve at the church and we clean. Nobody else seems to clean around here. And then, why well, do this. And everybody has their little pocket that they want to fit everybody into. And we're all messed up, amen? <laughs> we're all got our problems. We could sit there and poke holes in each other's lives like Swiss cheese, but we can't do it. God says, you know what? Be gracious to all. You were a mess when I saved you. Your church family's a mess. We're all a mess. We got more baggage than Hobby Airport. We all combined are just living, but we have to just not hold such a high standard for one another to where it just becomes like, aha, see, they messed up. Is your measurement grace or is it law? You better do this, this, and this, or I condemn you. Or is it like, you know what? We all make mistakes. We all fail. We're all human. Paul encourages us in Ephesians 4, be kind to one, one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And how, what's the standard for your love, for your kindness, for your forgiveness? As God, in the same way God in Christ forgave you. How did God forgive you? Immediately and completely. There's the standard. It's like, well, I need some time. You know, I don't know if I can forgive that. And we just, we have all kinds of standards that are not God's standards. We're supposed to look at what Christ did for us on the cross and say, you know what? He did that all because of my sins. And now here's someone who sinned against me. How in the world can I not forgive them when he's forgiven me of this much? I need to overlook this much. There's a great verse in Micah. It says, he will again have compassion. Talking about God the Father on us. He will tread on our iniquities underfoot. And God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God just says, hey, your sins, they're buried at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, which is really deep. We're finding out with science, even in this last year, how deep the Pacific Ocean really is, that the depth of the Pacific Ocean is deeper than any mountain on planet Earth is high. That's how, if you were to take Mount Everest and turn upside down, it would not touch the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. God put your sins there. That's an amazing thought. And Corey Tamboom said that God only put your sins there, but then he posted a no fishing sign. And that means you don't fish up your own sins and others shouldn't fish up your own sins. Okay? Now, can we learn from our sins in the past? Yes. And for those reasons, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, these, th these sins of Israel were there for your admonition so you would not repeat them. Gary's paraphrase there. And so we can look at past sins that we've done, or you can maybe bring to your kids' attention, hey, do you remember last year you were all gung-ho about this, and now it's just sitting in the corner collecting dust? So before you go out and spend another $150 on something, that's not beating them over the head with their sins. That's saying, let's learn from our sins, because those who don't learn from history, what? They're destined to repeat it. So there's two important discussions that we need to have to, to bring clarity to this passage. Number one is, when you think of forgiveness, realize that there's a transaction and then there's the process. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I am sorry that I offended you. Would you please forgive me? You say, yes, you forgive them. We release them from that debt. That is the transaction. You said they're forgiven, they're forgiven. Think of it in financial terms. Someone owes you a certain amount of money. They're struggling to repay it back. And you say, you know what? Just forget about it. I forgive the debt. 
Now, you've forgiven the debt. That's a, in, in Texas, your word is your bond. So therefore, that, that is a legal transaction. You've forgiven the debt. The next time you see them, and they're, they're, they've got some, a brand new car, or they've got, they're eating out at an expensive restaurant or whatever, you might be like, yeah, oh, man, I can't believe they, they couldn't pay me back. And no, 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 I forgave the debt. You might still struggle with the process of your feelings, but you've got to do the transaction. Some people say, well, you know, how, do I, have I really forgiven them if it still bothers me? I don't know. Did you forgive them? Did you say I forgive you? If you said it, you have. That's the transaction. The process is getting over it. It takes some time. So don't confuse your feelings with the act of forgiveness. They're separate. You might struggle with your feelings for a long time, but you will, by the grace of God, if you truly have let go, let go of the debt, then, then you will work through the process. Number two, we need to distinguish between forgiveness and consequences. If somebody does something very inappropriate towards your spouse, but then later ask for forgiveness, you can say, yes, I forgive you. But that person will never be alone with your spouse ever again, okay? If they've done something to your children, abusive-wise or whatever, they will never babysit your kids ever again. And the, the person who's guilty will say, well, I thought you forgave me. Yes, I forgive you. Doesn't mean there's not consequences. Doesn't mean there's not barriers. Again, we have to make sure our barriers are not to punish, but to protect. That's the difference. If you're creating barriers to punish the person, that's, you're, you're trying to play God. If you're doing barriers to protect someone else who's innocent, maybe even yourself, that's okay. Take, for example, King David. He committed the sin with Bathsheba, adultery. He not only did that, he had her husband murdered, who was one of his most faithful soldiers. Really ugly scene there. He got on his face before God, wrote Psalm 51. God forgave him. Then he's like, God, you know what? I want to build you a, a, a I want you to build you a, a house. And God goes, not you. Blood's on your hands. But I thought you forgave me. Yeah, I forgave you, but there's consequences. So th- we have to distinguish between the two to prevent, pre- pre- prevent further pain. Let's move on to training before leadership. This is the part I struggled with this week in study. I'm like, what in the world is this parable doing here? It says he also told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? This is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is they can't, right? No, they can't. Will they not both fall into the pit? The rhetorical answer is yes. <laughs> it's a bad scenario, and it, it just shows that God has a sense of humor right here. Just the picture of a blind person leading a blind person and then both falling into a pit. First of all, who's at fault here? The blind leader's like, hey, follow me, follow me, when he, he himself can't see, you know? And then who, if you're blind saying, but can you see? No, I'm, I can't see, but I'll lead you. Like, who's at fault here? Maybe both are to some degree. But why does, this, why does Jesus talk about forgiving and don't judge and all of a sudden? All of a sudden, he throws this in here. Well, look at it again. It's right in the middle of these forgive, don't judge, be, have a low standard for other people, don't measure t- sternly, don't be hypocritical about it, and right in the middle. So here's what we see. Number one, judging usually involves what you see. We usually judge people based on appearance. Now, we can judge behaviors too, but a lot of times it even the circumstances, we just see that, but we don't really know what's behind them all. That's why Jesus said, and I wish all these famous people who quote, judge not, lest you be judged, would quote this one too. He says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, Jesus commands you to judge. 
Just make sure you do it with judge. You do it rightly, and you don't be, be, do it based on just appearances. You need to do some investigating, and until you know what's going on, you give people the benefit of the doubt. Someone doesn't show up for work. They don't call in. You don't say, oh, man, that person's slack, whatever. You say, wait, maybe they're sick. Maybe, maybe someone close to them died. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they're, they're dead. You know, give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't be so harsh on them and always assuming the worst about what people are doing. Don't do it just based on physical appearance or just appearance of circumstances. Number two, the reason this, Jesus throws this whole blind leading the blind in the middle of this whole thing about judging is that the Pharisees are who he's talking about. We know that from Matthew's gospel. He says, let them, he was talking about the Pharisees, let the Pharisees alone. They are blind guides, and the blind will lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. So this is who Jesus is talking about. And I want to remind you, again, as we've gone through the book of Luke, one of the big themes is Jesus really doesn't like religious people. <laughs> people who are just like going through the motions and just doing things. Look at me, God, aren't I amazing? That was the quintessential definition of a Pharisee. Trying to impress God with all their good things instead of being humble before God. And he says, you know, that's who he's referencing here. And, and so he says in verse 40, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, let me give you a couple things to understand this. Verse. First of all, this is like a proverb. It's axiomatic. means it in generally is true. In other words, if you live a good life, you'll live long. Proverbs says it over But all of us know someone who lived a good life and died young. And conversely, we all know people who were stupid, evil idiots who lived in 98, okay? But in general, is it true that a good life means you live longer and a crazy, wild life means you might die young? Yes. This is one of those statements. Not all disciples become like their teacher, but in general they do. But he's also saying that they won't rise above. In other words, whatever, whoever you're following, you're probably going to rise to that level. Some people surpass their teachers, but in general, you rise to the level of teacher. Which teacher is this talking about? Is he talking about the Pharisees and their disciples, or is he talking about himself and his disciples? I believe it's both. I don't think, he didn't say, and I think he left it open on purpose because he's trying to contrast them and him. So let's use the Pharisees. If you are a follower of the Pharisees and you're going to follow that religious track, you're going to end up just like the Pharisees. And you're probably not going to be any better than that. But if you're talking about following Jesus, you end up being like Jesus, and you definitely won't be any better than him. So I think in both cases, it, it could be true that he's talking about both, and that's why he didn't specify. Let me use my paraphrase here. You will not turn out any better than the blind Pharisees, and you will end up being like them. You will end up being blind. That's why he threw this in there, because people who judge people hypocritically are blind. People who judge people harshly are blind. They don't see their own faults. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so harsh. But if you're fully trained by me, talking about Jesus, you will end up like me, able to see and judge properly. Again, Jesus, when he says judge, not that should be judged, he's talking about harsh, hypocritical judgment. He's not saying don't use any common sense. He's saying to be able to see it, you need to be a disciple of mine and be fully trained of my, uh, by me. So therefore, before you can enter into leadership position and, and encourage people to say, hey, come follow me spiritually, you need to be trained by Jesus and become a disciple of Jesus so that you can see clearly and judge clearly.
clearly. Our culture is full of spiritually blind teachers giving all kinds of bad advice. Now, thankfully, there's all kinds of really good ones too. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't want to think that I'm the only one who has the truth. There's lots of good churches in Paraland, Houston, etc. But there's lots of bad ones. There's lots of people giving really, really bad spiritual advice. I find that the Bible is a lot like football. Everybody knows what they should have done. <laughs> Everybody seems to be an expert. There's people who say, oh, I read the Bible through once, and I think this, this, and this. Like, how did you read it through once, and now all of a sudden you know it all? I've been studying it since I was nine years old, and I still don't have a clue on a lot of things. And it's, it's, We need to realize that there's a lot of false teachers out there. That's not my opinion. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen. He, especially in the last days, the number of false teachers would increase. There's a lot of blind people leading the blind. Beware. Matthew, Mark 13, 22, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. They're going to be really impressive with their so-called miracles. But why are they doing all of it? To lead you astray. And it says to lead them astray permanently, if, if possible, the very elect. In other words, if you're truly saved, you can't be permanently led astray by them. But he's saying they're so good that even the elect could be deceived by them. He said, but be on guard. I've told you beforehand, I warned you, <laughs> don't fall into these false gospels, these, these, these things that are not of God. A healthy church has leaders who have time to study the word and, carefully and members who take time to study carefully to hold those leaders accountable. I, I want to make it very clear, as I've done before, I am accountable to you. And if you think I teach anything that is not correct, you have not only permission, but you have responsibility to come to me and say, hey, Gary, I think the word here says actually this, but over here you're saying this. Can you tell me why this seems off? If you ever go to a church where, that, where a pastor says, who are you to question me? I'm the man of God. You need to find a new church yesterday. Okay? Not only do I want you to do that, I encourage you to do that, you are obligated to do that. And if I ever come across a defensive, I will ask for forgiveness because this man right here teaching is not perfect. God's word is, and I'm accountable to you. And every good, healthy church will have multiple leaders who take time to study it. Have you ever noticed the cults don't have full-time pastors? Think about that. Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe in full-time pastors. So none of them are really studying the word of God as a job. They're all studying the Watchtower magazine. And that's the standard. Mormons don't have full-time pastors. You see, if you had someone full-time studying the Word of God, it can keep the whole church on the same page. And again, that's not my, that sounds like a conflict of interest, so I want to be paid, you know, what you guys do pay me. Thank, I thank you for that. I'm saying, what did Paul say about that? He says the laborer is worthy of his hire. You don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Let the pastor, just like the priest, benefit from the ministry. It shouldn't be lucrative, where they're you know, living in multi-million dollar mansions, I believe, but they should be able to take care of their family so they can study the Word of God full-time. But it also requires members who take time to study as well. Acts 17, 30, uh, verse 11 says, Now these Jews, talking about the Jews in the city of Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Here's why. They received the Word of God with eagerness. That's important examining the scriptures daily to see if these things, what were these things? The things that Paul, the apostle, who wrote more books of the Bible and the New Testament than anybody else, they were double-checking him when they got home every single day. 
He, and he didn't say, well, who are you to question me? I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. I've heard, have you heard personally from him? Have you witnessed the resurrected Lord? He could have said, look at me. I've got three PhDs. I've trained under the feet of Gamaliel. He's like, no, good job, Bereans. Good job. You are noble because you took time to study to make sure what I was teaching you was right. We need to be accountable. Uh, Eugene needs to be accountable. I need to be accountable. Greg, all, Pastor Stan, we all are accountable to you. We're not above reproach. We're not above uh, inspection. And the third reason Jesus put this parable here in the middle, I believe, is having a beam in your own eye is blinding, okay? Which, which leads to the next point, introspection before inspection. Introspection is looking where? Inward. You need to take a deep, long look inside yourself before you examine someone else. <clears throat> he, uh, he gives another humorous illustration. He says, why do you see the speck, that's why we call it inspection, just kidding, that is in your brother's eye, and you don't notice the log or the beam or the plank, as it's commonly translated, in your own eye. So Jesus is using an incredible sense of humor here. Someone has a piece of sawdust in your eye, and you're going to walk around like this. Hey, look what you got in your eye there. And, and you're going to bump into them, and you're going to, and hey, let me get that out. And, and you're going to hit them with it. And just how foolish this looks right here, trying to use this to talk about how bad everybody else is with their little piece of sawdust in their eye. It's crazy. But this is what we do. We go around trying to criticize. Maybe we don't do it to their face. Maybe, we, maybe it's even worse. We do it behind their back. And we think that other people have flaws, but we don't see our own. And Jesus gives that crazy illustration of what I just tried to illustrate, how foolish and crazy that is. Hebrews 3 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who is being deceived by sin? You are. The sin is deceiving you. It deceives you by thoughts like, well, it's not that bad. I can quit any time. Everybody else is doing it. Well, God will forgive me. Deceive, deceive, deceive. You're letting that sin lie to you about how bad it really is. And if you don't take care of that deceitfulness, it will harden your heart. And that's the warning the writer of Hebrews gives. And it goes on to say, how can you, Jesus says, how can you say to your bro brother, brother, you're talking all spiritual. Let me, the one with the big plank in the eye, okay, take that speck that's in your eye when you don't even see. It's not that they don't know the log's there. They don't even see the log's there. How blind can you be not to see that this is, in, this is hanging out your eyeball? We need to remove the board. We need, now, this doesn't mean you will ever be perfect because you will not. But we do need to, before we look at the flaws of other people, we need to take a long look at the man in the mirror to quote that great theologian, Michael Jackson. Verse 42b, you hypocrite. Man, you can be called a lot of names, but that's the one that probably hurts the worst. If you're called a hypocrite, you know, the thing that is nearest and dearest to you, the Lord Jesus Christ and living for him, and to be called hypocrite has got to be painful. But that's exactly the title we deserve that Jesus is calling us if we do this. And again, I believe he's talking to believers. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then, guess what? You will be able to judge. So again, throw that whole phrase, oh, don't judge me, in the trash can. Jesus is saying, no, just first get your own life right. 
Get, get rid of the big hypocritical things in your life, and then you will be able to see clearly, which you will definitely need. You'll need 2020 vision, spiritually speaking, to be able to help other people get the specks out of their own eye. And this is not to minimize a speck. This hurts. But can a speck do it, damage your eyeball? Yeah. I had that happen last year where I got a chip of something in my eye, and it was just tearing up my eye really bad. I, I had to go to a doctor and get some ointment, and they had to flush it out and all that stuff like that. It can really mess up your vision. And so you do need to help other people with those specs. If not, we live in a culture like, hey, you do your thing, I'll do mine, you be you. Nobody judges anybody, nobody helps anybody. It's none of your business, just leave each other alone. And we're all walking around with irritated eyes and in pain, wondering why we can't see what God is doing. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that? When Jesus comes and returns and sets up his kingdom, he's going to say, okay, you know, you go out there and judge the world. So much for don't judge, right? You're going to be in charge of judging the world. And so he, he was saying this because there was a minor dispute in the church, and they were wanting to go to law against each other and sue each other. He's like, hey, no, no, don't do that. Christians sue each other. You're going to go before a pagan judge, two Christians who claim to know Jesus Christ, and you're going to ask this unbelieving judge to give you a, some wise discernment on the, a decision on that? He says, are you not incompetent to, to try trivial cases? Within the body of Christ, minor cases can be handled here. And Paul gives out the whole formula, which I could teach on another time. Galatians 6.1, one of my favorite verses I quote often, says, Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who have removed the plank out of your own eye, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness some translations say meekness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you also be tempted. In other words, you go to them with a, you, you say, Lord, you know, I see someone over here living in a certain sin. But Lord, before I talk to them, show me, search me and try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. And let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. And you go through a process of confession. You say, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm right with you right now. I don't have any unconfessed sins. There's nothing I'm not willing to do for you. And so now I'm, I want to be in a position where I can be spiritual and go to that person and I can restore them, not condemn them, not to beat them over the head, but to gently bring them back into the fold and to live right with you. Because someday I might be tempted by the same thing. You see what that verse is teaching us there? So we've seen the forgiveness before judgment. We've seen training before leadership. We see introspection before inspection. That brings us to the final point, transformation before production. He talks about produce. We have the produce section at your HEB or wherever. Production, produce. It's, and he gives this obvious conclusion here. No good tree, if, it, if it's a healthy tree, is going to produce bad fruit. Nor again does a bad or unhealthy tree produce good fruit. For, and so the analogy is, People are like trees. In fact, there's a, if you listen to the podcast, um, The Bible Project, they have a whole series of things about how people are trees. It's really fascinating. I recommend you listen to it. There's tons of them. Anyway, um, so the good person out of the good treasure of his heart, notice where it comes from. It's not external. Trees don't have fruit on them because someone went up and tied something to all the branches. It had to come from deep down, up through the trunk, and out. It's an expression of what's already there. 
See, a lot, of, a lot of religious people get frustrated because they try to attach fruit to their limbs when they're actually dead. And they're trying to show fruit when the fruit has to come from within, and the fruit can't come from within from a dead tree. So an evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, that is, produces evil. It, what, what you put in is what's going to come out. If you're a true believer and the Holy Spirit of God is living within you, the fruit of the Holy Spirit will come out of you. If you are a sinner that is depraved and unregenerate, you're still lost and you're in darkness, darkness will come out of you. Don't read too much into the word evil. You say, well, I'm not evil. Evil is talking about anything that is not godly. The good fruit in this passage is being gracious and forgiving instead of being, the bad fruit of being stern and judgmental. So which, when we're talking about fruit, we're not just, the Bible talks about it in general sense of being good works, to being the fruit of the Spirit, to being addition fruit where you bring others to Christ. But here it's talking about in the context, forgiveness. Is the good fruit of forgiving people being merciful coming out of your life? Or do you constantly struggle with, oh, mm, mm, I'm not letting that go. Oh, there they are. I'm going the other way. Just if that's the, which fruit is coming out of your life right now? You cannot produce good fruit unless the tree has been transformed into a good tree. Everybody say transformed. That's the, that's the main thing here. Just like metamorphosis where a, a um, caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It's a radical transformation. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the transformation takes place in the heart. Therefore, the words forgiveness can come out of the mouth. So what are we speaking? We're speaking forgiveness in the context. Forgiven people forgive people. And I'm not saying a true believer in Christ cannot struggle to forgive. If you're a believer in Christ and you're struggling to forgive, you need to run quickly back to the cross. And think about how many sins are there. And the answer is all. Just think about all your sins. <laughs> you can go back to the darkest times in your life when you're like, you're, you would be embarrassed to even explain it in public. You can think of the worst things that you nobody knows about but God. And all of it, Jesus held out his arms and said, it is finished. It's all forgiven. And you think, gosh, I've been forgiven so much. How could I even hold a grudge when someone's done this against me? But if you, like, as a life, like, struggle to forgive, maybe you've never been transformed. Maybe your heart has never been changed by the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... You are either in Christ as a newborn believer or you're not in Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory. There's no spectrum here. You're either in or you're out. And that is all based on the decision to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a butterfly. You're no longer a caterpillar trying to fly. And that's what forgiveness is for a lost person. They have no basis on which to do it. It says that the old, the bitterness, the grudges, the unforgiveness has passed away. Behold, the new forgiving spirit has come. You see, the problem is we all have planks in our own eye. We all have a beam in our eye, and it causes us to be um, blind. But Jesus took the plank, the beam from your own eye, and he put that cross beam upon his shoulders. 
And that's how he's able to forgive us so that we can see clearly, to see as he does, so we can help other people. Are your sins on that cross? Have you accepted the forgiveness that he offers? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to become sin, the very one who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we sinful people might become what? The righteousness of God. Not because you got baptized, not because you keep the Ten Commandments, not because you give money to missions, not because of anything else, but because you put your faith in Christ, you became His righteousness. It's an amazing transaction. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of your sin and mine is that we deserve to die. But Jesus instead offers us a free gift of eternal life that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord Jesus, I make you the boss of everything in my life. I give it all to you. Every decision about my education, my relationships, and all that stuff, it's all yours. I'm going to follow you. And I believe in my heart that you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried, and that God raised you from the dead. When you make that decision, you are saved. Have you made that decision? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm asking God's people to pray for the lost this morning, that God, the whole, through the Holy Spirit, would open eyes and take away the blindness. And if you're watching online, or if you're here in person, you've never made that decision to trust Christ, that you can do it right here, right now. Nobody's going to come to you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to just ask you to have a conversation with the Jesus that loves you. Father, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture, a passage that's so often abused, but yet when we know the truth, it convicts us of who we really are. We do struggle with those planks in our own eyes. But Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have them removed, and we can therefore be in a position to help other people to grow spiritually, to remove specks, so that we together, as the family of God, could become more like Jesus Iron, sharpening iron, encouraging one another, provoking one another to love and good works, lifting each other up, edifying. Lord, help us to be that kind of church. We ask all this for the glory of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. If you still have questions about the gospel, about becoming a Christian, there's my number. Call me, text me. Let's, let's have a conversation. Um, let's see here. I was going to ask, uh, Ashley, would you come help with question and answer time? If you'd like to ask a question, here is the number. You can text that in right now as we speak. And Ashley's going to use this microphone right here. There we go. And um, if you were encouraged by this message, let me encourage you to invite someone to join you, to sit next to you. Uh, a lot of our recent guests have been because you've done just that. You've invited people to church. In fact, how many of you ever heard of a guy named Lee Strobel? He, there's a movie out about his life called The Case for Christ, but there's a fascinating story I want to tell you. He was at the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist, not a believer at all, and his wife became a Christian, which annoyed the heck out of him, and um, he wanted to prove Christianity wrong, so he did tons of research, and then talking to lawyers and scientists and theologians and all that stuff, and through the whole process, he became a Christian. So one day he walked out of work, and he felt the Lord tell him, hey, you need to go upstairs and invite that guy who's an atheist to church for Easter. And he just felt like God clearly was directing him to do that. So he went back up to the elevator, went up to the whatever floor they were on. He walked back over. He said, hey, so-and-so. He said, hey, Easter's coming up. I wonder if you'd go to church with me. He goes, 
I'm an atheist. Why would I go to church with you? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And he walked away from him. And Lee was like, why did I feel so clearly directed to God to ask this guy to church when I just got flat out rejected and humiliated? And uh, I don't know what that was about. Well, four years later, Lee became, was a pastor. And after church, a guy came up to him and said, hey, I want to thank you. Four years ago, you changed my life. And I'm a Christian now. I, I don't even remember you. And he said, no, we've never actually met. He said, when you invited that atheist, he said, I was the telephone repairman. I was on the floor under the desk rewiring the phone. And I was so impressed that you stood up for your faith that I'm like, I went home and told my wife, hey, we're going to church this Easter. We both went to church and we both got saved. So true story by Lee Strobel there. So you never know what God's going to do when you invite someone. Um, so there's plenty of these cards back there. We got another thousand in. Um, they have the QR code with the gospel presentation on the back, the time of our services. Use that to invite people to church this Sunday. All right. I got some good questions. <clears throat> what advice would you give to a couple who's been together for five plus years where one tells the other, if you fix certain things, then I will marry you. If you don't, I won't. I won't. Are they judging righteously or unrighteous? Righteously or unrighteousness, is this justifiable by God? Um, I need to make sure to confirm a point in detail there. Is it say together? It says together. together. Who's been together? Okay. So let me answer this question with two scenarios. If they're living together, this person is majorly hypocritical because they're, they're, they're wanting to get the milk without buying the cow, as grandma used to tell us. Okay. So that's like really wrong. And, and that's a, they're, they're just using you for all the benefits of marriage, but then holding you to a high standard of marriage when they're doing a low standard of, hey, I, I'm okay with living together and not getting married, but you better be really perfect. And so love, man, what if Jesus did that to us? What if Jesus said, you know what? You need to fix this and this, and then you'll become the bride of Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now let's assume that they're not married. Um, why haven't they moved on? If you're so horrible, why don't you, well, then go get somebody else, you know? Um, and then let me do a third scenario, I guess. What if you do need to improve? What if they're just dating and it's been five years and they're waiting for improvement and you're not willing to improve? Well, then maybe so. But again, if the other two are true, again, when you marry someone, especially, first of all, you need to be adults when you get married, okay? <laughs> There's three things that will bring divorce down to single digits. Number one, wait till after age 22. Number two, don't make a baby together before you get married. And number three, don't live together before you're married. That, that's not some Christian statistic. That's pew research, okay? That the, the divorce rate gets down to single digits. So if you meet an adult and you start dating, realize this for those of you who are single, teens, that that is the best they will probably ever be or at least be willing to deal with that. Because when you're dating, you're, you're, on all, you're firing on all pistons. You're buying roses, you're showering, you're putting on cologne, all that stuff. And then five years later, it's like, well, what the heck? You know, who cares? You know, and so what you see right there, that's about as good as it's going to get. And do you, are you willing to love them for who they are there? And guess what? And that they might get worse. That they might gain a lot of weight. That they might get lots of wrinkles. That they might be in a wheelchair. That's what love is. Otherwise, it's like, you know, it's a marketplace and you're trying to get the best price of some meat. It's not, it's just not right. It's spiritually dangerous. It's spiritually dangerous. For sure. Okay. Okay, Long so answer, here's a great, great question. question. Here's, what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? 
put it, the best way to understand it is to put it where Jesus is, in financial terms. Someone owes you money, you forgive the debt. It has nothing with your feelings. It's a transaction. And you have to say, I, the debt has been, and see, the thing is, when you, whenever you forgive, someone has to pay a price. So if I come to your house, and I actually knock over your lamp that costs you $210 at Gallery Furniture, and it's because it's a really nice lamp. And I'm going to say, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me buy you a new one. No, 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 Pastor Gary, don't worry about it. Just, I, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Please, don't buy me a lamp. It's okay. Either I pay for a new lamp or you have the loss of the lamp. Someone is financially hurt. But the, the good news is Jesus took up all of the debt on the cross. So the debt's been paid. Now you're just paying it forward. And so... Forgiveness, think of it as financial forgiveness. You said something to me one time that it really stuck with me. You said forgiveness is a, an action and it is a process. Yes. So you forgive, but then you may have feelings later on, and then you may have to remind yourself that you've forgiven that person. Absolutely. It doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. Exactly. Okay. Very good. Good. <clears throat> Would the wonders the false Christs and prophets are performing be similar to Jesus's miracles with raising people from the dead or miracles that seem impossible? Or would they follow a more modern approach to miracles with like advancement in science and technology that seem impossible? Hmm. Great question. That is a very good question. I think because they're claiming to be Christ and claiming to be prophets, it will mimic just like the um, Pharaoh's magicians mimicked Moses, um, and then when you see in Revelation where the Antichrist and the beast, they will mimic, okay, so they will counterfeit. I think that's more likely. That doesn't mean that the other one can't happen, the scientific thing, whatever. But it does say, though, that in the last days that there will be signs and wonders in the heavens. And I wonder if that's what all this UFO talk is about, but that's a great question. UFOs in the Bible? Okay. Ezekiel. Does God will evil? Did he create evil? Are those two different things, willing versus creating? Okay, so, man, that, golly, theologians have been debating this for thousands of years, and good people who are godly people disagree on this. And so I'm probably not the best qualified. I'll give you my um, lesser educated answer. I'll get, say it that way. Um, I don't believe God created evil. I believe God created human beings with the potential for evil. Okay? So therefore, God brought Pharaoh into existence, knowing that Pharaoh could choose evil, and knowing that he would. That's not making Pharaoh do it. That's why it says, several times says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then several times says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so you see the free will and the sovereignty working together, not against each other. So um, what was the second part of the question? It says, um, are those two different things, willing versus yes. creating? So, and then use, if, I, if you mean the word will as an allow, yes, God allows evil, okay? And in overall God's comprehensive plan, he allows evil, but in the end he destroys evil, okay? Good. Okay, why did God choose to have the children of Israel become slaves for 400 years? Um, I believe it's in... Deuteronomy, he said that to humble their hearts because they were, um, they didn't trust God and, um, but also to bring about Joseph rising up as a picture of Christ and the slavery in Egypt is a picture of us and our sinfulness and Joseph is a picture of the Savior who rises up to save the people and of course Moses, 
Jesus also the second Moses and the prophecy about there will become a, prop, a prophet greater than Moses. If you read the Old Testament, none of those prophets, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Micah, Malachi, none of them were ever called greater than Moses. So the Old Testament ended with nobody greater than Moses. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And that's why Jesus says, something greater than Moses is here. Okay, and that, that was played out in The Chosen really well last night. Well, they, the they gave their freedom up too. So in the land of Goshen, they had it made basically. They were in the fat of the land. And even later when they're in the wilderness, they really complained a lot because they always had meat to eat. So I feel like it's also a question of giving up your freedom in order to have security, which is what they had in Egypt. They definitely had security, even though it was wrong. And I mentioned Joseph, which is prior to the slavery, but you start seeing the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph starting to oppress. So that was the beginning of it. But here's the interesting thing. How did they get out? When did they get the law? While they were in slavery? No. They were delivered and then given the law. Law does not deliver from sin. Only God's deliverance saves you from sin. So that's a beautiful picture there too. That's it. Okay, that's it. Great. Well, let's stand and uh, we're going to read this uh, scripture as a blessing over one another as we go out into this week to be light in, in a dark world. Read with me on First Thessalonians chapter 5 on verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. God bless you.